Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at PinnacleHealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. If I say heart disease, you probably know the American Heart Association, cancer, the American Cancer Society. But if I say orphan's disease, you probably ask, what's that? And that's the problem. An orphan's disease is a group of illnesses that affect less than 200,000 people and thus are considered rare. As a result, there isn't as much attention on orphan's diseases and certainly not as much research or research dollars. Cushing's disease is an orphan disease, and our guest today suffers with Cushing's disease, but she campaigns to bring awareness to rare diseases. Maria Conley, Marie Conley, I should say, suffers from Cushing's disease author of a book, A Cushing's Collection, and who campaigns to bring awareness to rare diseases. Marie Conley, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having us. If you have a question or a comment, maybe you suffer from a rare disease or know someone who does, a family member, we'd like to hear your stories. 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Have you had to explain to someone uh, what your illness, what your diagnosis is? 1-800-729-7532. Three two. Uh, first of all, Maria, I have to say that uh, now you have a website, and we'll have a link uh, to your website on ours, witf.org, where you have uh, photographs of your journey from you know five or six years ago when you were diagnosed, and uh, some of them you were not looking real good. So I have to say today, you look great. Well, thank you. <laughs> and I'll ask the question: How do you feel? I feel okay. Uh, there's um, a lot of ups and downs, and I think the one thing that those of us with rare diseases, um, a majority of us, no one actually sees what's happening on the outside. Um, I'm sorry, on the inside. And on the outside, you have, you know, the way I see it, two options. You either keep moving forward and, you know, everybody has their own, you know, crosses to bear and, and you know, wouldn't do any good. I know someone was going to take a picture today, so I wasn't going to not show up looking up, not okay. So, <laughs> well, let's talk about Cushing's disease. What is it? Um, there's. It's interesting because the when most people hear about Cushing's disease, uh, the first thing, um, and a lot of times actually when you Google it, it uh, refers to um, an illness with dogs or horses. Really? Yes. You know, now that you mentioned it, yesterday I did Google it, and uh, I was looking for a photograph, and there were three pictures of horses. Yes, so I hope I'm a little bit better than that one. Um, but, you know, I, I think there's there's two things with Cushing's disease. There's Cushing's syndrome, and that is when your um, adrenal glands are secreting um, too much cortisol. And uh, I will definitely share with you, I was not a biology major. I feel like I, I am um, definitely much more schooled now. But cortisol um, affects every... Uh, cell in your body in its different way and in, in what its particular um, role is in its in your your body system. So that's Cushing syndrome, and sometimes that can be because there was a uh, possible tumor on the adrenals, which sit right above the kidneys, or um, you can actually become Cushionoid, and that a lot of times that happens, unfortunately, with cancer patients or uh, patients who have been taking large amounts of prednisone or steroids. Uh, Cushing's disease, which is what I have, is a benign tumor was found on my pituitary. And the pituitary is just a, a pea size um, uh, gland on um, at the at the base of the brain. And um, unbeknownst to me at the time, you, you hear about it being a master gland, but it pretty much controls everything. And what it was doing was sending um, messages to my uh, adrenal glands. And, you know, we can tell the story, but jump ahead, my body was drowning in cortisol. And what did that do to you? So That uh, is jumping ahead, because I'm going to go back to your symptoms and all sure. that, but what was the cortisol doing to you? Um, it, it takes effect in different ways, which is why Cushing's disease is so hard to diagnose. Um, I started having bouts of bronchitis, pneumonia, strep, and shingles. Um, some talk, chalk that up to, oh, well, it's a new job and stress, and you know, you 
you, my doctor checked my white cell counts and everything, and you know maybe I just wasn't getting over a bug. And then um, I noticed that I was gaining weight, but it's very difficult sometimes when you're trying to tell physicians you're gaining weight because everyone's like, well, you're getting older and your body is changing. And but I knew something was wrong. Um, we were trying to have a, another child, and that wasn't happening. Um, I then fractured my hip. Um, I never even had a sprain or a break before, and um, during a sprint triathlon, fractured my hip, and they chalked that up to overtraining. Um, I started losing my hair. Uh, I started gaining uh, um, an increased amount of weight. I started yeah, becoming. You, you gained eighty pounds, right? Yeah, about that. A little yeah. more. Yeah. So. Um, your face is red. Then I started. It's yeah. It's a lovely disease, um, especially for someone who's vain. Then you know you start getting a mustache. So there's. But the long and short of it is, you know, I could no longer break down carbohydrates, sugars, or proteins, which is why I was gaining the weight. Um, some cells that needed the cortisol, I, um, you know, it affects your complete immune system. So therefore, my immune system was suppressed. Uh, my hip that fracture now, of course, with once I was diagnosed, it's um, uh, bone um, tenderness. So, you know, the breakability of my bones at that point in time, there are a lot of cushions patients who suffer from um, severe fractures in their uh, lower extremities and in their backs. So I, I guess I was lucky that it was my hip. Um, so it, it takes effect in, in all different ways. And then there's, you know, acne. And then there was um, a problem with my foot that should have been extremely treatable just by probably two doctor's appointments. It ended up being something that was about 14 or 15 months long, and it still wasn't being able to be treated. Jump ahead as soon as it was cushions, the immune system. So, Wow. Yeah. I mean, when you said that it affects almost everything. There isn't anything it didn't affect. So as far as treatment goes, you mentioned the pituitary. Mm -hmm. uh, is that brain surgery? Did you have surgery? Yes. So um, there are several different paths that um, you can go once you're diagnosed, and to actually get diagnosed in and of itself is very, very difficult. But I was fortunate. I had a, a PA at um, Penn State Hershey Medical Center, Mike Fetter, who was my primary and, and just kept going test after test. So I saw so many different specialists. And then he's like, I think, you know, we need to send you down to Penn. I went to another specialist at Penn. So I think that one was my eighth. And then um, by the time I saw Dr. Julia Carlip down at Penn, who was an endocrinologist, and I have to be honest, I didn't, I didn't even know what an endocrinologist was. Um, and she said, I, I think this, you know, might sound odd, but these symptoms can all relate to possibly Cushing's disease. And she's like, but don't Google it because the possibility of having it is extremely rare. And um, it's a series of tests for about a week. And within nine days, I was diagnosed because my cortisol levels were so high. Um, at that point, they did an MRI scan, and they could see um, a tumor on the uh, the pituitary. Uh, met with numerous surgeons, and um, you know the great thing about Penn had a pituitary center, so there aren't many of those across the country. So it's really the opportunity to work with a neurologist and um, uh, an ENT doctor, because basically what happens is the Fortunately, they're, I know it sounds goofy, but they're able to go up through your nose. So at least I was able to keep my hair. Um, and uh, so basically one surgeon's in there preparing for the neurosurgeon to go in and actually remove the tumor. So in essence, I had four sets of hands up my nose, which was kind of interesting. Um, you don't want to picture that. No. Well, um, <laughs> but your surgery wasn't successful, was it? It wasn't. Um, so basically what happens is that you're supposed to basically go through this withdrawal is the only way that they can describe it because my body was pumped with with basically cortisol or steroids. You remove um, the, uh, the the generator and I should crash. Um, and my cortisol levels were slowly going down and they should have been at about zero and they were hovering about seven, but they were at 35, 42. Um, and so my husband and I, my family, we were excited. And then that I had the surgery, I believe, on a Friday. That Monday night they came in and they said it's it hasn't worked. So how did they treat you? Um, there's, you know, the neurosurgeon came in and they felt extremely successful in what they 
they did that the problem is is with ACTH cells, which are the causing cells of um, Cushing's disease. Um, unlike some cancers, there's not a tracker, so to speak, that can connect on to those cells. And so the cells could the, the cells actually are somewhere else in my body. It, currently right now, and we can get to that later. They removed part of my lung and both of my adrenals and the little buggers are still in there somewhere. But um, I had to heal. Um, I would say that during that um, August to October when we made the decision to have my adrenals removed, um, I became more, more, more sick. I could barely walk, difficulty breathing, um, gained more weight. Um, you had diabetes then too, right? Um, I didn't have diabetes, but they were definitely watching for my my blood sugar, and mm. that actually is I'm I'm lucky because I caught this early enough, which is between. Probably they think that I had it maybe about three or four years before I was diagnosed. There are most people, it's between five and ten years. And at that point, the damage is done. Um, then in some ways, it can be corrected. But anyway, so the, we ended up having my adrenal glands removed in October. And, um, you know, basically what you can think of is, uh, you know, that fight or flight, think of how many times people say to you, like, don't worry, your adrenaline will kick in. Well, m- mine doesn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there's and then there were several challenges that occurred after the pituitary surgery. And then there were several challenges that occurred after the adrenalectomy. And um, but again, my story is not uncommon for most people with rare diseases. And we're going to talk about uh, those rare diseases in, 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 in just a moment. But so you decided to fight, though. I mean, many people say and cancer is the one the disease that we hear about the, the most that uh you know, many people say, I want to win this battle. I'm going to win this battle. How did you make that decision? You said very early on that you can sit back and accept this or you can decide to battle against it. What did you decide to do? Um, I think I, I like to believe that, you know, because of my parents, I've since at a young age and been extremely goal oriented. And I think there was um, for a period of those two and a half years I knew something was wrong, and I kept going to doctors, and, and they treated me exactly for what they should have treated me for. Um, but the minute I found out with Dr. Carlip down at Penn that this is it, here's our plan, um, I, as long as there was a plan of action, a plan of attack, um, the, min- the first important, you know, the most important thing to me was it was not hereditary. So as soon as I found out that whatever was wrong was not going to be passed to my son, you know, there's there's really no other option, um, and I will I will say that I didn't necessarily. If you would have told me, even you know, in 2013, would I be fighting in 2012? And now, what I'm fighting in 2017 from 2012, I you know, would I've given up? No. Would I've been like, oh gosh, this really is a a marathon. Mm. So what did make you uh, feel better? I mean, as I said, there's no cure for this, mm-hmm. but what actually worked? The Removing the adrenals um, was uh, a, a, essentially, you know, I removed the receptors. So the messaging is still being sent, but there's nothing receiving the message. So once you remove the adrenal glands, the symptoms, so to speak, start to dissipate. And, you know, the the internal damage that was done to my body because of the um, cortisol. Some of those effects are still there. Um, Not unlike um, other diseases, Cushing's disease patients go through a lot of cognitive challenges. Um, uh, It's almost like a a blurriness at times, and you learn to manage that, and you learn to put yourself, at least I have, in successful situations. Um, You understand your good days and your bad days. Um, There's um, a lot of osteoporosis, uh, a lot of joint pain. Um, your immune system is completely suppressed. If you do have adrenal glands removed, um, you're susceptible to adrenal crisis, which um, I've suffered a number of those, which when you go into the hospital. Um, I also had an unusual, um, uh, I guess, challenge after the uh, the brain surgery, which was called uh, permanent diabetes insipidus. Although 
it's funny because it was it's on my charts as permanent diabetes insipidus, but as of two months ago, it's no Not longer permanent. there. Oh. So, which is, I'm like almost afraid to say it out loud because well, every time yeah, I think it. something, right. Don't jinx it. You're listening, we're going to talk more about rare disease in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health. Its 11 principal investigators and nine nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at pinnaclehealth.org slash myheart. You may have heard that uh, later this morning, former FBI Director James Comey is scheduled to testify before the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. He'll be questioned about his conversations with uh, President Trump and the FBI's investigation of possible Trump campaign connections to Russia. NPR News and WITF 89.593.3 will provide live coverage of the hearing starting today at 10 a.m. It's not only on 89.5 and 93.3, it's also on WITF-TV and online at WITF.org. So be sure to tune in. I know that uh, much of the country will be tuned in to find out uh, what the former FBI director has to say. During this portion of the program, we're talking about rare diseases. Our guest, Marie Conley, who suffers from Cushing's disease, author of a book, Cushing's Collection, and who campaigns to bring awareness to rare diseases. If you have a question or comment, maybe you know someone, maybe you yourself have uh, suffered or been diagnosed with a rare disease, one 800 729 Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can leave a question or comment, leave a story on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. All right, I referred to Cushing's disease as an orphan's disease. As you said, you didn't know anything about Cushing's disease. Probably many people are learning about it for the very first time hearing this show this morning. Uh, when did you find out how rare it was? And then what led you to learn more about other rare diseases? I think, you know, clearly once I was, there was the possibility that this was the diagnosis. And when I was in with um, my endocrinologist, Dr. Julia Carlip, and she was explaining, and this is even before the testing was there to confirm, um, I kind of got a sense of of just how unusual it was. Um, it, what's amazing is I was diagnosed in 2012, and the numbers then that we were using were 1 in 10 out of a million. Um, 1 in 10 people out of a correct, million. Correct, correct, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the, we've shot up now to anywhere between 3 to 8. Oh, so that's you know hey, <laughs> every little bit counts. Um, but I mean, it just shows you that there is you know diagnosis, um, early diagnosis is is critical. Um, and uh, you know, I I think at 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 a given point in terms of rare diseases, I will be very honest and say that for um, you know one of the happiest days of my life, I'll never forget this. I was leaving Penn on the train headed back and I was so excited that I I had possibly a a brain tumor and that I was going to have to have like brain surgery and then when you talk to anybody with Cushing's or someone who has struggled with finding out what's wrong that's not an uncommon thought I mean you you get to a point where you all you're doubting yourself because you trust the doctors I trust the doctors I I you know hold no like any ill feeling towards anyone. Everyone did exactly what they could do for me. But you you realize you're at a point um, where you're you feel very alone. And I you know, one of the first things my doctor had shared with me is please just don't go on the Internet right away. And um, I, I did listen and I didn't go on right away. And then um after the test came back, you know, we only brought a small group of people of our family um, and very small group of friends in to say, you know, this is what it is. And then it became incumbent upon me. I don't know if it's from my background in politics or I I wanted to um, create and form the story because, you know, I said in the book, like, if I didn't share exactly the way and what was being done in this world, I'd be in Guam getting a lobotomy. Like, so 
I did a lot of research, and once we knew what our path was, um, I shared it with our family and friends and started there, I guess, as our first opportunity for awareness. And um, and then as I started getting relatively better, um, whatever that means, um, I started realizing there's a whole other community. And I was grateful for the opportunity to have organizations like NORD, which are the National Organization of Rare Disorders. Um, Global Genes is another um, nonprofit that really works with um, rare disease, a, a focus on pediatrics. Um, uh, I think it's um, Magic Kingdom is another one that deals with more adrenal. So you realize that while you are in a very small group, when there's there's something about the strength of, of having all you know, individuals that are all kind of going through the same thing, misdiagnosis. Um, you know, the best is, you know, when I was 80 plus pounds and my hair was falling out and my face was beat red, uh, you know, people would be like, you knew you were sick. And, you know, if 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 you're feeling better and you actually get the strength to do your hair and your makeup and, you know, and and you look better on the outside, then you're not sick. And and it's 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 a challenge, I mm-hmm. think, for a lot of us with chronic illnesses. What are some of the other rare diseases that uh, people are not aware of? Oh, goodness. Um, you have uh, Friedrichs-Alexandra, which is um, a, a disorder that works, um, that, that functions with uh, disability of, of the body and the bones. Um, you have, I think it's acrimonia, which is another one that sometimes is almost diagnosed with Cushing's and then there's just a, a difference in terms of how the pituitary um, responds to the cortisol. There's so many. I, I guess if if I have to look at a bright side, at least Cushing's disease, it's easy to pronounce. So, um. <laughs> Yeah, that is a good way to look at it, I, I guess. But uh, what about the research? I mean, as I, I stated in the introduction, obviously cancer, heart disease, strokes, all those illnesses... Uh, many, many people across the country, across the world, suffer from those illnesses, those diseases. As a result, they get a lot of attention, a lot of money. There's a lot of research. Mm-hmm. What about some of the rare diseases that, uh, well, Cushing's, for example, any research into it? There's, you know, it's interesting. When I was diagnosed in 12, um, the first FDA clinical, uh, clinical clinical trial was approved. I think we now have, I, I can't be specific, but I know it's it's almost 10 that are now in the pipeline, and they all deal with the suppression of the actual cortisol with the ACTH. Um, there's We have one organization uh, that's kind of like the mothership, um, but it's a lot of just small groups. And the, and the foundation I created... Um, I just knew that. You're, and say the name. Because... I'm sorry. Um, it's the uh, the Conley Cushions Disease Foundation, and I'm fortunate because the Foundation for Enhancing Communities, which again is a great organization for so many of us, really allows me to not worry about a lot of the administrative stuff. They take care of that, and what I can really do is focus on um, how where is this niche that we can help? Because with with most rare diseases, especially pediatric rare diseases, um, it's usually the parent organizations and the patient um, organizations that are really doing the fundraising, working directly with doctors on medical trials, um, finding the funding streams for medical trials. So it's um, it can feel um, lonely sometimes, but I, I guess anybody who has any disease can sometimes feel alone. It just all, it's all relative. Have you ever asked yourself I mean, in your lowest moments, why me? I mean, uh, what are the chances when, you know, I, I develop this disease that uh, three to eight people out of a million? I, I, yeah. I mean, I'd be lying if I said I didn't. And there are times that absolutely, you know, I, you know, will be in the shower and I'll cry and I'll just, you know, then I remember and I, I guess... I don't know. I, I think about my career path, and in some ways, it's the most bizarre career path. But I had a blessing for three years to be the director of the Children's Miracle Network. And when you look at my professional career, and then you look at that position, nothing made sense. And I, I, I think oftentimes I think of some of the Miracle Kids, and and I think about some of my friends that I've seen that have the same disease but don't have the same support system. 
it's it's kind of hard to feel bad. I've, I I can pick up my son. I can still do um, work predominantly from home. I I'm blessed with a great family. Uh, you know, I have great people like Steve Aaron who you know help me figure out the right ways to get this out. So I I do feel bad for myself. Don't get me wrong. Um, I kind of feel like, geez, if I was a size four, maybe I wouldn't be as, you know, um, aggressive in the awareness. But nevertheless, um, I, you know, I, I, I've been blessed. And if, and if my career path is put all of these bizarro things together so that um, I'm able to, to be here with you today and one person just knows to be a stronger advocate for themselves or, um, you know, document everything and go in with to the doctors with your binder of because I would go from doctor to doctor with this probably six inch binder and they'd say maybe we should do this test and I would pull a tab and say well we did this here and what about this and um, you know even some of the the medical struggles I'm going through right now I've got a team of endocrinologists down at Penn that honestly don't know what's going on Mm. (laughs) and you know I was just down there yesterday and and to have some of these brilliant minds say, let's just try this and, you know, I'll see you in four weeks and let's just hope for the best. You know, I. You have what, confidence, but at the same time, that doesn't sound reassuring. It's, you know, you know what I'm reassured about is that I. I'm here, you know, and it sounds corny and. um I have bad days. There are days that I can't get out of bed, and there's days that there's a lot of pain. But every everybody has their own stuff to deal with, you know? And if if I have this, but I have a loving family, and I have got people surrounding me that I can, you know, rely on and, and, and care for, and I have, you know, the, the last 11 months have been really, really difficult for me um, medically. But, you know, everyone... Like I said, I it's not it's not for me to go out there and bother everybody about this. Although it's ironic, as now I'm on the airways, <laughs> but nevertheless, <laughs> yeah, to bring awareness to it. You know, something you just said though that uh, kind of strikes me. Uh, you mentioned being involved with the Children's Miracle Network, and you were also talking about uh, pediatrics. These diseases are so difficult to diagnose because even your symptoms, what you described, it could be one of maybe 80, 100, maybe even more than that. With a child, maybe even a baby, that can't describe their symptoms, that would seem to be very, very difficult to, to uh, if there was a rare disease involved, to, to diagnose. It's There's actually at um, Global Genes and at, the, at Nord, there are groups specifically for parents where their children are undiagnosed. Um, just a few weeks ago, we, we celebrated in Pennsylvania our National Rare Disease Day, right. and there was um, a, a, a young woman from Gettysburg and her son, John, and he is undiagnosed. And he is 13 months old, and I can't even fathom. Um, we had this beautiful young woman who's a friend of ours, um, Carly Wolf speak, and she is 16 years old. And has been homeschooled for the last two years and has two different rare disease diagnoses now. And, um, you know, as a parent, I, I, I know what it's like for my son to have gone through. I can't fathom being um, a parent and not being able to help. But that's that's why it's so critical. There's there's an, um, a bill that just got passed out of the House, which would create a, a rare disease council or advisory council Um and when it passes, I should say, will will be one of seven. But it unique in, in the country in the country, mm-hmm. and it will uniquely help um, patients with rare diseases, just in terms of navigating some of the systems. Of course, everything within HIPAA. Um, but the the criteria for who would be on the advisory council, they have two spots for parents with, um, you know, with pediatric patients. So. Um, and they ask for a, a pediatric doctor who specializes in rare diseases. And, you know, Penn State, I mean, we're one thing about Pennsylvania is we are so blessed with great medical care, n- no matter where you go. I, I sometimes have spoken to Cushions patients who are in rural, rural areas throughout the country. And um, it's an expensive disease because a lot of things are not covered out of pocket. Um, it's always generally I shouldn't say always it's generally misdiagnosed so you have people in I, the one lady specifically in rural Kansas and trying to help her figure out a network 
um, that she can go into. So it's it becomes um, an extremely um, isolating journey. Let's take a phone call from uh, Heather in Harrisburg. Heather, you're on the air. I just want to let you know that you have my utmost respect. Um, any person that's diagnosed with any sort of disease, um, not only do you have to fight that disease, but you also have to fight the insurance company. You have to become an advocate. You have to become an expert on insurance, what's covered, what's not covered, what can you get covered. Um, then you have to, you know, try to stay healthy, plus remember to brush your teeth every day, cook some meals. like, And I just want you to know you have my utmost respect, and good luck to you, and I pray for you. Thank you. Hey, Heather, before you go, you sound like you're speaking from experience. Yes, I am. I don't. Thankfully, I don't have a disease like the disease she has. But you know, sometimes to just even get my prescriptions paid for was a fight. Um, and then every year, your company would cha- would change insurance companies, so you have to start the fight all over again. And you're spending, you know, thirty hours a week, fifteen hours a week, trying to get just your prescriptions paid for. It, it, it can be very daunting. Thank so. you very much for your call. Thank you, Heather. Yeah, I, I was going to say she. Uh, he, you were nodding your head yes as, as she was speaking. Um, it, it it's funny because my husband and I joke that usually there's about four hours um, every month that I put towards um, just paperwork with medical bills. Um, I will say, I thank God every day for um, our insurance plan, and I am blessed because. Um, I, I am a strong advocate for myself, and um, I I can articulate on most days um, what's happening. And I've been able to have, um, again, um, physicians who specialize in rare diseases, um, just even with the medication a couple weeks ago, they know how specifically to write the prescription um, so that uh, a, a um, insurance company is going to understand it. And that's one of the great things about this advisory council is that intuitive knowledge just to be able to say, like, you know, you're not fighting for every single every single thing. Okay, well, let me, one final question then. Let me ask you, because the advisory council, the House, um, you know, developing this, this council is one of the reasons that we wanted you had to have you on the program today. What do you want to see come out of this council? Um, I, I honestly right now wouldn't change anything that's in it. I think just the awareness and the actual um, creation of... A, a council that would focus on the the challenges of rare diseases and that they're looking at the spectrum, whether it is from insurance, um, having representatives on there from hospitals, from pharmaceutical companies. Um, you know, sometimes the, the biggest challenge is, is, you know, you're in an FDA pipeline that's 20 or 30 years away. Um, uh, I think having the ability to, um, again, I, I use the word isolating so often, but just even having the ability to create, and if I could ask, you know, if I, if I had a wish of what this council would do is allow there to be a network for rare disease patients within Pennsylvania to even have that ability for a support system. Um, I started a small support group. We meet out of the King of Prussia area, and there's... Um, from Maryland, New Jersey, Delaware, and um, Pennsylvania, and there's about 33 on the list. There's about 12 active. Um, but as as much as I am able to talk to my family and my friends, there's something about speaking cushionese to <laughs> cushionese, you know, to people where you know, um, you know, those of us without adrenal glands, I. I I chalk it up to a point system, and I, I some people refer to it as the spoon theory. But I get twenty points a day, and you don't realize that, you know, like Heather just said, showering and brushing your teeth is you know points. I I'll be honest, I allotted about seventeen points for today, so I'm pretty much done after this. <laughs> so, um, but but seriously, it it also affects what I do tomorrow, and it affected how I performed and what I did last night. Um, I don't have that luxury anymore of just getting up and doing. I and and I will say that I, I would have preferred it to be much more subtle, um, you know. And I say this with you know with peace and love, but I will. I have such an appreciation now for things in life that I 
I know that others don't. I know what's important. I, I know what deserves my points, and I know what doesn't deserve my points. Marie Conley, thank you very much for telling your story and bringing awareness to rare diseases. Thank you very much. Thanks for this opportunity. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Celebrating its 50th year, Art of the State is the annual juried exhibition held at the State Museum of Pennsylvania with an established tradition of exhibiting highly creative art chosen by a distinguished panel of jurors. Art of the State is open to Pennsylvania artists and craftspeople. A lot of people looking forward to this Sunday when Art of the State begins. And as I said, it is the 50th Art of the State exhibition. Joining us today, Amy Hammond, who's a curator at the State Museum of Pennsylvania, and uh, she has an article, great article, describing the, the history of art of the state in this uh, in the summer edition of Pennsylvania Heritage Magazine. It's called "Representing Pennsylvania's Precious Heritage Art of the State 50." Amy Hammond, thank you very much for being with us today. Good morning. Thank you for the opportunity. Also joining us today is uh, Jamie Yastrzemski, not Carl, Jamie. <laughs> Yastrzemski, who is a program director at Jump Street, and Jump Street is an organization here in central Pennsylvania uh, that develops and educates using the arts. Uh, Jamie Yastrzemski, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. All right, so, um, Amy, let me start with you. This, uh, as I said, read your article, and uh, provides a great history. Mm-hmm. Boy, the State Museum being able to provide history. Who would have thought? Uh, <laughs> it's our but, business. <laughs> <laughs> provides a great history of, of, of this event. Talk about why this is so significant in Pennsylvania. This is a significant event because, uh, you know, to have a partnership that has lasted 50 years through thick and thin that uh, really supports the arts is... Started with Harrisburg Council of the Arts. Yes, it's, it started, uh, well, to... To back up a little bit, it was born during a very difficult time in our nation's history. Uh, there were a number of protests and riots, and tensions were very high around the Vietnam War. Uh, and uh, President Lyndon Johnson established the National Endowment for the Arts in 1965, which uh, was followed by the Pennsylvania Council of the Arts in 1966. And the uh, Greater Harrisburg Arts Council uh, was sponsored by the Pennsylvania Council on the Arts in 1968. So within three years, it went from the national to the, the, the local level. And uh, yeah, the Greater Harrisburg Council on the Arts uh, was a very strong supporter, uh, was a co-organizer of the exhibition until 2012 when uh, Jump Street. But, you know, it was very localized back mm-hmm. in uh, 1968. I mean, it was just like the three counties around uh, the, the State Museum. Uh, but then it became uh, became statewide. So what was the idea behind the, the uh, art of the state? Uh, the idea was really to support the local arts, uh, to build community. It has been a, a great opportunity for people to make human connections. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, people, uh, they wanted to... Whenever they were experiencing these difficult times, they wanted to be able to to have a safe place to go and to to have conversations. And it has really supported the arts throughout the years, and it continues to to go strong. Absolutely. I think it also sort of provides a snapshot every year of what's happening in contemporary art right now in Pennsylvania. Well, you know, that's something I wanted to talk about because... Uh, you know, Amy, when you said uh, about the time period when this started, the art reflects that. Absolutely. Not just contemporary art. Mm-hmm. I mean, contemporary art, um, you know, like, there are you know, different, uh, uh, different genres, and, you know, you'll see almost anything. Mm-hmm. But if you go back through the years, uh, you mentioned Vietnam. I mean, there was some controversy even one or a couple years about uh, a photograph, uh, mm-hmm. about a painting that uh, depicted Vietnam. I mean, this is very reflective of our society and Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. correct? Yes, Pennsylvania artists are, are very informed, and uh, artists, they really want to share. Mm-hmm. So they experience and they absorb, and then they, they want to be able to communicate that with, with other people and with the public. And uh, the Vietnam, there's a strong history of 
of that that actually circled back this year. And in 1972, the uh, there was a play called Viet Rock that was canceled because it was considered too controversial, and there was a painting that was removed. Which uh, you know, there was a lot of backlash from the public uh-huh. because they did not want to be censored. Correct. Uh, but by 1988, the the Purchase Award, which is a selection that is kept for the collection of the yeah, state we're, of we're Pennsylvania. We're talking about the Purchase Awards, but go okay. ahead. Okay. Um, and we accessioned a work of art that specifically referenced uh, the Vietnam War by Stephen March. And this year, there uh, an artist named James McNally, was, who is a veteran, has uh-huh. a work of art that's exhibited. So it's kind of come back again. And let me take this opportunity to, to provide a little bit of a plug here. And maybe uh, WITF listeners and those who uh, watch WITF-TV are aware of this. But Ken Burns, uh-huh. the documentary filmmaker, uh, has probably the most ambitious project he's ever done on Vietnam, the Vietnam War, uh, starting in September. It's 10 parts, uh, 18 hours on on Vietnam. And as a result, we've been collecting stories from Vietnam veterans. I have a sense that when that documentary is on the air, that there are going to be many, many people paying more attention to Vietnam Probably a lot of artists in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania doing the same thing. Uh, Jamie, let's talk about Jump Street and uh, your role in this. We said we started off with the Greater Arts uh, Council of, of Harrisburg. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it Greater Harrisburg Arts Council? Greater Harrisburg okay. Arts Council. Uh, and Jump Street now. But part of your mission, not only development of mm-hmm. the arts, but the education. When we're talking about what's going on in the world... That seems to art is a is, is a really good way of educating people. Absolutely, art sort of encompasses everything. It's not only science, but it's history. Um, you know, you can trace back people uh, figuring out geometry and perspective to Renaissance paintings and their need to produce something that was so true to reality that they sort of pushed that science forward. Um, and you know, we were just talking about the Vietnam War. People sort of. Uh, visualizing um, how they feel and what their emotions are in that moment and representing the time. So, mm-hmm. Do people know. understand that, that art is an, edu- an educational tool? When I say people, I'm talking about a wide range of people. The masses. I'm sure, yes. That's right, because mm-hmm. I'm sure people in the arts community understand that. I mean, over the last few years, uh, we've had many debates in local school districts about the importance of art, uh, maybe even on the museum level about the importance of the arts. But do people overall understand that there's an educational component, a history component, all those things that you mentioned to it? Um, I hope so. Um, That's sort of what our goal is. Um, Part of what Jump Street does is we put artists in schools for artist residencies um, so that you know, uh, an artist can work with a teacher. Um, I know one of our projects was a mural, um, and an artist taught uh, geometry and color to these students while they were painting a mural. It's an easy way to make lessons tactile, and that's how some people learn. So it's it's it is super important to to encourage children and to encourage all of us to try and learn that way. You know, I think of history so much. I'm such a, a student of history uh, that, you know, I, right away when you're talking about geometry mm-hmm. and art, I go back to da Vinci. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, f- w- as you're growing up and you're learning about Leonardo da Vinci, mm-hmm. you see, you know, some of his, his his classic work. But then as you get older and you learn more about da Vinci, you learn hey, the man was a genius in other areas mm-hmm. as well, Absolutely. and people learned through through his art. Absolutely. And geometry is one of the, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the topics that they learn most about. Mm-hmm. Okay, you had mentioned um, the Purchase Award, Amy. Uh, this is something that uh, started way back at, at, at near the beginning, mm-hmm. and it continues until this day. What is the Purchase Award? The Purchase Award is uh, a work of art that is selected by uh, an executive staff member or sometimes a guest judge, and uh, the artist is is paid to um, to accession their work of art into the collection. So a work of art becomes a permanent part of the collection of the state museum, and therefore a part of the state's the state's art collection. And it really it really does, uh, as Jamie said, serves as a snapshot of a place and time. 
Well, maybe we should describe when you talk about this being a permanent part of uh, the, the state museum uh, for the event itself. And this runs through uh, Art of the State runs through September 10th. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the artwork. And it's more than just artwork. I mean, you, you, you mentioned a play. I mean, there's more going on than just uh, artwork and, uh, you know, media that you can see. And, uh, I mean, there are actually people involved with with different forms of art yes. as well. But uh, talk about, if if you would, you know, how this is just part of the exhibition up until September, but then what becomes permanent? Uh, there is uh, at least one work of art, sometimes more than one, that uh, is, is taken to the Collections Committee at the Pennsylvania Historical Museum Commission, which is a group of curators and scholars that are responsible for making long-term decisions about the collection. So every uh, artifact and work of art that comes into the collection is very carefully analyzed and examined and considered. And, uh, you know, the work of art is... Uh, considered on uh, artistic merit and also, you know, what is the need of the collection? You know, what do we, what haven't we covered yet? And then the, it goes, uh, you know, to the committee so they can examine it to make sure it's part of it. But it is, it is selected from the Art of the State exhibition. What, uh, what are you missing right now? I don't know if I can reveal. <laughs> I, I, I'll give you a clue. All right, okay. The, uh, the purchase award is the first of its kind. For really? the collection, so there's, we, for this year, for for this year, it is the first of its kind in our collection. Very and exciting. We can't reveal it because uh, you'll have to come to the award ceremony mm-hmm. uh, on uh, June 11th at 1:30. If you want to know That's what it the, is, this, this Sunday. Sunday, this Sunday, Sunday. yes, yeah, free and open to the public. Okay. It is, yes. Uh, okay, so you know, Jamie, I was going to try to get you to spill the beans, but I guess I'm not going to be able to do <laughs> that. Can't huh? <laughs> but a first of its kind, huh? It is the first of its kind. Talk about today's art. You would, uh, you know, Jamie referred to contemporary art. Mm-hmm. How does contemporary art differ than art in the past? That's a tough question. Um, I it's try just to ask those kind of questions, Jimmy. It's it's a progression, um, and that's that's what art is constantly trying to do is push itself. Um, you know, I think art now has a lot of freedom. Um, a lot of different things are considered art now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the way that things are moving is, um, I think, in a more inclusive way. Um, there's a lot of stuff in Art of the State this year that is you know, sort of considered contemporary art, but then there's also pieces that feel and look more classical, um, and that's okay. That's that's what artists are doing, and that's all accepted. There's no right or wrong. Okay, there's no right or wrong. <laughs> Isn't that kind of subjective, though? Yes, but art is. Okay. We're getting to a deep conversation. I know, I like this. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, keep going. Um, yeah, that's that's sort of the beauty of art is my taste might not be Amy's or yours, but it's still beautiful and it's still wonderful to me. Um, I think that the purpose of art is sort of a, um, oh man, I am getting deep here, uh, <laughs> a, a, a transference of emotion. If an uh-huh. artist can do something that makes me feel, then it was effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might not have the same effect on you, but if it works on one, then... Then it works. Is that what art is designed to do, to make you feel? That's what I think. Mm-hmm. So yeah. to, to bring emotion. Absolutely. To to affect your, your way of thinking and your thought. Amy, as I read your article in Pennsylvania Heritage Magazine, I'm thinking, okay, Amy, she's a curator, but she obviously has some knowledge, some art knowledge. Did you, uh, were you an art major or anything in school? I was one of those students who had no idea what they wanted to do. Really? And I took, uh, as an elective... See, there's a lesson here, folks. (laughs) (laughs) I was covering my bases, and as an elective, I took a a World of Art class, and uh, I just, I was immediately hooked. It was, I think, at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I couldn't wait to be there, and I couldn't wait to hear what the professor had to say, and I knew that that was so inspired, and uh, Mm -hmm. and it is just really, it continues to be an inspiration. This is my 10th year of having the great pleasure of working working with Pennsylvania Art and Artists in Harrisburg, and I just love my job. Well, I, I can tell that uh, from, <laughs> from the article itself. I mean, as I said, as, as, you know, I just reading that article, I got an education as well about the, the history of art of the state, but an art history as, as well, how things have changed over the years. You know, I'm curious, and maybe I'm not, I don't want you to point a finger at any one per- person in particular, okay. but you mentioned that uh, Viet Rock that yeah. was there were people who were 
uh, upset at being censored. I mean, was it actually censored? It was canceled, and the the painting was removed. And there was a an article in uh, the Patriot News by uh, James Doris was his name, who was a veteran and uh, worked with the governor at the time. And he specifically said, you know, art is a representation of of our society, and you know, we need to have these conversations. So, I mean, are there things that uh, would be considered cutting edge today that there would be people who would look at and say, I don't know whether that belongs in a Pennsylvania museum? Yes, <laughs> that is, you know, as 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 Jamie said, art is subjective. And, uh, you know, there is there is something in art of the state every year for someone. There is uh-huh. uh, beautiful traditional landscapes, beautiful por- portraits, uh-huh. um, but there's also contemporary art, too. Artists uh-huh. are very informed and, uh, you know, they have access to information. Uh-huh. Pennsylvania is such a fertile ground for creativity. There's uh-huh. museums, there's camera clubs on the local level, you know, yeah. there's, there's all these wonderful institutions. You know, that's one of the things that strikes me, too, and I'm a proud Pennsylvanian. But in reading your article, I mean, I don't know. I'm not looking to compare Pennsylvania with other state, other states. But we do have so mm-hmm. much creativity. Mm-hmm. And in the early years of art of the state, uh, you highlighted some of the classical Pennsylvania artists, mm-hmm. Demuth, um, the Wyatts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say the Wyatts. I don't know if, if there were more than there are obviously there are more than one. But I mean, I don't know whether they were highlighted in the, uh, the art of the state, mm-hmm. but. You know, Pennsylvania has a proud heritage mm-hmm. when it comes to art and artists. So you have a lot to choose from. Yeah, we do. And, you know, historically, obviously, there are a lot of, you know, Charles Wilson Peale and his sons. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of of outstanding artists. But, you know, in the in the contemporary world at all, it, as well, Andy Warhol was from Pittsburgh. Right. And he exactly. is one of the, you know, right. if not the Icons. most famous artists right. of, of all time. Right. Yeah. Jeff Koons is also Jeff very popular. from York, right? From York. Yep. New York, yeah. We only have about uh, 45 seconds left. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, some of the particulars, again, uh, as far as uh, Sunday. Uh, well, the award ceremony begins at 1.30, uh-huh. and uh, it, we are free, as Jamie mentioned. And if you're looking for more information, our website is statemuseumpa.org. And jumpstreet.org. And I enjoyed the conversation. Wish we had a little more time. We're going to be going to James Comey here in a very... I don't know if there's an art there, but uh, <laughs> maybe there will be a, 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 a little bit of art come out of uh, out of today. But uh, Next year's Art of the State. Yes. <laughs> there you go. I want to thank uh, both our guests for being with us today. Amy Hammond is a curator at the State Museum of Pennsylvania. And Jamie Yastrzemski, uh, Program Director with Jump Street. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, this is a program that we do on an annual basis at the beginning of summer books for reading on the beach or on vacation that's coming up on tomorrow's program smart talk is produced by witf as part of our mission to deliver relevant high quality programming support for this program comes from capital blue cross which shares witf's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve capital blue cross live fearless Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org quality.